Welcome to the West Virginia Writers Podcast, a service of West Virginia Writers Incorporated, the Mountain State's largest all-volunteer nonprofit organization dedicated to writers. Established and incorporated in 1977, West Virginia Writers continues to support writers and writing statewide through program sponsorship, an annual writing contest, and an annual summer writers conference. This podcast is dedicated to promoting the organization, its members, and events, as well as writers throughout Appalachia and beyond. And now, here is your host, Eric Fritzhughes. Thank you, Gertrude and Ola listeners. Welcome to Episode 74 of the West Virginia Writers Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Fritzhughes. Well, when I last left you, it was back in March, and we were approaching the final week of our contest submissions period. As the contest coordinator, I was hoping to get out a good two podcasts during March to help promote it. But apparently, I didn't need to, because the entries for the contest came pouring in at a rate that precluded me from having any time to assemble a podcast. So instead of featuring a reading from one of the prose winners of last year's contest, I wound up just processing entries like a madman, all to a soundtrack of my male lady as she cursed my name for giving her a herniated disc from carrying all of them. All right, that didn't actually happen. I wound up arranging to pick them all up from the post office, saving her any unnecessary physical injury. It just sounds funnier if she's leading protest songs against me in the front yard in some kind of Occupy Eric's Hilltop movement. So, nearly a month late, today's podcast features a recorded live reading by Rachel Geringer, the second-place winner in our Emerging Writers Prose category from 2014. Her story is one of my favorites of the entire contest from last year. Heritage. 
Um, and so it was published under a different title. Um, it is the same story, but it's now called Not the Mountain Kind. They broke down in the thick, hot air on the side of the highway in Arkansas. It was a big old boat of a Buick, deer tan. Leroy had bought it for $100 and then rebuilt the engine. He couldn't read, but when he closed his eyes, he could trace the workings of an engine from start to finish in his mind. His old lady was asleep, swollen and pregnant with his first child in the passenger seat. Her baby from her last man was asleep, too, on her lap. Both of them were red and sticky in the heat. There was the sound of mosquitoes whining and the slap of his hands against their bites. The big rigs barreled by much faster now that they sat still with the bright green of the rice paddies laid out alongside them. He wondered where she dreamed of when she slept, the mountains of their home or the hot plains of her youth outside Texarkana where they were headed. He'd never left West Virginia before, except to go to the part of Virginia that might as well have seceded with them in 1863. From what he'd seen so far, he figured he wouldn't have any reason to ever leave home again, assuming they made it back. <laughs> he woke her to tell her that the car was dead and he was going for help. She scowled and said, God damn it, Leroy, and then closed her eyes again. He left his woman, her child, and their unborn baby sleeping in the car in the slow afternoon, and set out walking, long left arm outstretched, muscles distinct beneath tanned skin, thumb up towards the sky. The woman who picked him up drove a new Toyota, talked clean and harsh like people in the movies do. She said she was from New York City on her way back to Austin wrapping up a tour. There were guitars and hard black cases in the back seat coated in stickers. There was fine blonde hair on her legs above her cowboy boots and a tattoo peeking out from the neckline of her shirt. He could hear her bracelets clinking like the wind chimes on his mother's porch as she turned up the air conditioning. She asked him lots of questions, but he kept his mouth closed as much as possible without being rude, not wanting to let his rounded words out into the air with her sharp ones. Have you ever been to Clifftop, she asked. I go every year. The festival that young kids with money went to over near Sam Black Church, where the girls didn't wear bras and the boys wore thick beards and flannel shirts but talked like this woman, and they all took drugs but never got busted. He remembered how a young girl in an old-fashioned dress had flirted with his uncle after she heard him play the banjo, and how his sister had pulled at her own shirt hem and fidgeted around all those young women whose teeth and hair and skin glowed who carried themselves with such importance. He remembered how they'd ignored her, hadn't even looked at her even though she was the best fiddler there, how it had made him want to fight someone, and he had, and then his whole family had gotten kicked out. They'd never gone back. No, ma'am, he replied. She finally stopped asking him questions and turned up a Hazel and Alice recording. She sang along with a voice like powdered sugar, flexible and pretty, sweet and white. He could tell life had gone easy on her. He bet she hadn't bought the car with money earned making music. He heard his mama's voice in his head saying, you can't sing a mountain song unless you know despair up close and personal. He thought of his brother and sister sitting on upturned buckets on the patio outside the trailer, 
singing and picking, the crickets and katydids droning in on the harmony. He felt his throat tighten, felt a deep gratefulness wash over him for all that he lived through. Maybe he could never be free of folks who thought they were better than him, but at least he understood a few things about living, about surviving, about despair. It was only when this woman's car faded off into the distance and he breathed down deep into the bottom of his lungs that he realized he'd near to suffocated on the ride. The mechanic told him it would cost 400 to fix something he knew was only worth 150 even with labor. So he walked in the direction the man had told him to till he got to the junkyard out on the edge of town. He heard the roar as he was trying to argue down the price of the part he needed. Everything stopped. The birds, the wind, the sound of his own voice. He walked away still holding the part though he hadn't paid and rounded a mountain of flattened cars. The junkyard owner shouted after him, wouldn't go over there if I was you, boy, lest you're looking to get eight. It was an African lion with a full mane, not the mountain kind from back home. Its hair had fallen out in thick patches, and there was a dullness to its golden eyes despite the strength of its voice. It snarled, but still he walked closer. What the fuck are you doing, you stupid boy? The junkyard owner yelled at him again, but Leroy walked closer yet arm outstretched, palm facing skyward, until he could feel the lion's breath against it. He could see the sunlight trapped inside the mane, though dust and malnutrition had muted its glow. Its whiskers spread out and towards him, ears forward and alert. It tilted its chin up. The lion's nose was dry like sandpaper against his palm. It opened its mouth to lick his hand, just as the junkyard man's whip cracked against its hips. It roared and ran, cowered against the post where it was chained, bleeding and hissing. He saw dark scars crisscrossing its back and dog food thrown on the ground right next to where it shit. I don't know how women raise you up in West Virginia, the junkyard man said with malice in his voice, but in Arkansas, boys are raised to listen. Leroy bought the part for more than it was worth, wanting to get away from the junkyard man and quick, knowing that if the man called him boy one more time, he'd lose it. If there was one thing he'd learned in life, it was that if you waited too long to walk away, he was liable to not find a way out. He walked back up the road the same way he'd come, facing the cars and trucks that sped past, eyes to the ground. He couldn't shake the image of that lion, bleeding and hissing. As a boy in the mornings, when the sun was still hidden by the eastern mountains, he'd gone down to the river with the mountain lions to swim. The sun had shone through the high point on the ridge where the big spruce had fallen, and through the low gap where he'd cross over to the store when he awoke before his siblings to find the house empty of food. Other than those two stripes of light, the bottom was dark, and thick fog hung close to the water's surface. Jim and Julie McLean, the owners of the small zoo over the hill from his home, had paid him $2 a day for exercising the lions and bears, cleaning out their pens and changing their water. The McLeans had always been an odd lot, since back to Civil War times at least, 
when it was rumored that Jim McLean's great-granddaddy had fought for both sides at the Battle of Droop Mountain, periodically running across the open firing range butt naked with his muzzle loader held high. <laughs> so no one was surprised when Jim started trapping young mountain lions and bears and charging tourists money to see them. The old feline had been Leroy's favorite, stoic and glowing. She would sit in the far corner of her pen and watch him approach. He had always wondered if someday she would pounce down on him when he opened the heavy wooden door. Once he had opened it, she would slink down off of her high platform and walk slowly towards him, touch his hand with her cool, flat nose, and the shape of her eyes would change, letting him know it was okay to clip the lead to the ring in her collar. She had walked slowly and regally beside him on the mowed path down to the rocky shore. When they passed through the woods, he could feel her, alert with every inch of her lean body. He tried to imitate what she did, to sense the forest without seeing it straight on, through that part of himself that most people have all but left behind, the part that knows things without the guidance of senses. At the river's edge, she would unclip the lead, strip down to his boxers, and dive into the cool water. She would sit on the bank and watch him as a mother would. After some time, she would sniff the water's surface, test it with the tip of one large paw, and tiptoe in gingerly before the final ungraceful splash. Then she would swim across, muscles rippling below her skin as the water rolled over, the currents not seeming to phase her. She'd swim out towards the thick forest on the far bank, towards the wild, towards her freedom, but always she would turn back, swim past him and rise out of the water all skin and bones, and then the long bath, the self-involved preening would commence, where she licked herself thoroughly and then dozed in the warm sun, which had by then peaked the ridge. That had been in high school, when he had been saving back his $2 a day for the 72 El Camino, navy blue with glitter flake that Bill had for sale at his shop down by the Dairy Queen. It was only 15 years old and had 3,000 miles on it, and he had known that once he had that car, he'd finally be free. He'd earned extra money on the side, fixing cars and tractors. The El Camino had sold to a rich man from Charleston passing through on business. An old farmer had given Leroy a 67 truck that was all but rusted through in the frame, saying, Boy, you're about the only one I know who could fix it and needs it bad enough to try. That had also been before Leroy had gotten into trouble, before he'd moved into town with his uncle Dill, who seemed always to hover at death's door. The alcohol hadn't pickled his uncle and preserved him, but it instead made him into a gray shell of a man. Soon after moving in, Leroy had burned the lady cop's house down, the one some said took women home at night. Everybody thought that's why he did it, out of hate, but it wasn't. He could care less what she did in the bedroom. He liked her and how she walked tough and talked tougher. He'd just gotten so damn sick of looking at that house and of it blocking the light from his uncle's porch. Everything was so damn close together in town, he couldn't breathe right. Plus, his mama had always said that sunlight was the best cure for anything that doctors couldn't, and since Dill wouldn't leave the porch, Leroy figured the only way to get him some sunlight was to get rid of all that blocked it. He took down the roof over his uncle's porch with a handsaw and a crowbar, the trees with a chainsaw, and the lady's rental house out front with a fire. 
She'd always rented it to no goods anyway. Pillheads and drunks like Timmy Winder, who called Leroy a retard all through school and shoved him into lockers before they both dropped out. You'd think a cop wouldn't want to rent to someone like that, but Leroy figured she needed the money just like everybody else. Timmy had gone to jail about a week before Leroy did it, left the place all trashed and stinking. It's not like he'd wanted to hurt somebody. It's not like he'd planned to do something bad. How do you explain something like that? He knew it didn't make sense to anyone. He knew it was stupid, too. Knew that as soon as he lit the match. That's all he could say to the judge. He didn't say that fires got a powerful pull, but that's true, too. He'd spent seven years on house arrest working odd jobs for mechanics around town. Midway through his time, the lady cop had hired him to rebuild the house. She'd paid him and everything. He couldn't believe that. She knew he'd burn it down. Everybody knows everything in a town that size. But she hired him anyway. Didn't seem to hold a grudge against him. When he got back to the car, his woman was still red-faced, but now she was awake and mad, too. What the hell took you so long? He said nothing. We're out of food. He handed her a bag with a liter of water, two Cokes, some Fritos, a Snickers, and an oatmeal cream pie hanging heavy inside and said they didn't have no Mountain Dew. The baby cried. She stuck her knuckle in his mouth to try to quiet him, but he was hot and madder even than she. Hope you can fix it fast, Leroy. Maybe if you'd have got a better job, we wouldn't be driving this piece of trash all the way to Texas. She kicked the passenger door and he heard her say it under her breath. Dumbass can't even read. How the hell's he gonna feed us three? Then she turned on her heel and walked a ways down the road to the nearest telephone pole. She sat down in the thin shadow that sliced across the grass between the highway and the rice field. It took him the rest of the evening to get the car fixed, and she didn't come back until she heard the engine start. By then it was near dark. They slept in the car that night she and the baby in the back seat. He could hear her snoring gently. He sat in the front, careful not to recline too far back and disturb them. The traffic died down somewhere in the early hours of morning, but even still, the whine of tractor trailers was a constant, like the river back home. Leroy must have dozed, because when he awoke to the sun breaking across the horizon, no hills or trees to block it, He found himself at the intersection of relief and sadness. Sad because it had only been a dream and the lion was not in the back seat behind him, staring calmly out the windshield as if monitoring his driving. And relieved because there were no sirens and lights close behind, no nauseating guilt that he had left his wife and the baby back there on the side of the road. There were just the starlings, hundreds of them, maybe thousands, gathered along the phone lines that crossed the rice fields and the highway perpendicularly. His old lady didn't wake up until they were a good ways past Little Rock. The sun was still low in the sky, fat clouds way up in the blue heavens above, and finally a sign that he knew how to read, because she'd taught him to in the letters her mama sent that read, Texarkana, 89 miles.
was going to say, now you can submit to some of the other categories, but heck, forget our contest. Please start <laughs> submitting to publications. <laughs> Um, uh, next week, instead of a prose literary tea, we're going to have a poetry tea, and it's the community poetry reading tea, where uh, anybody that has poetry they've written or just poetry they enjoy can come and recite that here as part of the, the literary tea series, and it's one of my favorite days of the year, just the amount of talent that is in this community and beyond uh, is astounding, so please come back next week. Thank you all for coming tonight. Thanks again to Rachel Geringer for sharing that story with us. I look forward to reading more from her in the future. Those of you who caught episode 73 might remember me saying something, nay, threatening something, about having a shameless plug to pass along to you beyond that of my current role acting in Thornton Wilder's play Skin of Our Teeth at the Greenbrier Valley Theater. Oh, by the way, that's April 23rd, 24th, and 25th, and those are the final performances for that, so if you'd like to see it... Those are your opportunities. No, no, no. When I threatened to plug shamelessly, I was actually thinking of something else. Two somethings, in fact. The first shameless plug I have is that one of my short stories appears in a recently published anthology called Diner Stories Off the Menu, published by Mountain State Press. It's a story called Flying Lessons Over Lunch with St. Joseph Cupertina, and it's very much set in a late 1970s-era diner. Don't buy it just for my story, though, but because the anthology is also chock-full of great fiction, nonfiction, and poetry by an assortment of writers, many of whom are members of West Virginia Writers. You'll find Sarah Robinson, Mary Lucille DeBerry, Joey Medea, Vicki Crawford, Frank Larnard, Elliot Parker, Susanna Granny Sue Holstein, Theodore Webb, as well as the editor of the collection itself, Mr. Daniel McTaggart. And those of you who have been long listeners of this podcast will recognize former guests of this podcast among those names. The second shameless plug I have is that I have ten other short stories that have recently been published in another collection, this time my own long-in-the-works collection of modern fantasy stories. It's entitled A Consternation of Monsters, named after the collective noun for monsters. Go ahead, try to go look that one up. In this collection, a creature of make-believe proves difficult to disprove. A trickster god assassin doesn't take kindly to witnesses. Eldritch horrors can be summoned using a quilt. Frustrated wolves face dangerous prey. The angel of death wears a plaid sport coat. Wise old women are to be feared and heeded. Elvis is still king. The corpses of legends can be dangerous to have around. And where one of the world's most powerful and potentially destructive objects is a fork. A Consternation of Monsters is available from Amazon.com in both print and ebook formats, but it will make its print debut this coming weekend at the Lions, Authors, and Books Oh My event that is co-sponsored by West Virginia Writers and Alderson Main Street in Alderson, West Virginia. The event takes place at the Alderson Community Center there. Over 20 local and non-local authors will be present selling and signing their books, and in the evening there will be entertainment by Kirk Judd and Bob Shank. I myself will be there with a table selling both A Consternation of Monsters and copies of Diner Stories Off the Menu. You can find out more information about this event by searching for Lions, Authors, and Books Oh My on Facebook 
And you can also find that link on the West Virginia Writers website, wvwriters.org. Just head over to the blog and it's right there. You can also find out more about my book, Shameless Plugs, Shameless Plug, at mrherman.com. And any spelling of Mr. Herman should work, provided you spell Mr. correctly and Herman correctly. Or abbreviate it. Your choice. Thus ends the shameless plug. Before we leave you today, I must turn to a more serious matter. Miles Dean, a West Virginia Writers member and regular contributor to this podcast, passed away on April 1st. He was a prolific poet, and Miles was one of the driving forces for the Raleigh County Library Writers Group. I attended some of their events, and Miles and his wife, Rebecca, frequently attended ones held in Lewisburg. In addition to being a multiple winner of the Writer's Wall and People's Choice competitions at the West Virginia Writers' Conference, Miles published three collections of his own poetry, the most recent of which, New River Reflections, debuted in January. He always struck me as a gentle soul, and it was always a pleasure to see him and Rebecca when either I saw them at the conference or they would venture over for events in Lewisburg. In celebration of his life and work, this week I'm re-releasing episode 41 of this podcast, which featured Miles reading from his work. He appears in multiple episodes beyond that, however, and I'll add links to those at the podcast website, podcast.wvwriters.org. Please check those out and hear some great work from a very good man. Our condolences go out to Rebecca and his family. As Rebecca said in her announcement of his death on Facebook, we will miss him greatly. We have the many memories and his books of poetry which say so much about him and those he loved. Thank you for making memories for him and for us. We love you all. Our opening voiceover was provided by Marcus Vowell. Our show's music is composed by Pops Walker, whose albums can be found at cdbaby.com. This podcast is a production of Mr. Herman's Production Company Limited and was recorded at the Mr. Herman Studios atop a hill in Greenbrier County.